Teresa Wezar, your host of One in Ten. On today's episode, Engaging the Hope Within Us, my guests are award-winning classical pianists, Gregory and Deandra Brown of The Five Browns. Now, if you haven't been keeping up with the classical music world, then let me just tell you that The Five Browns have taken it by storm. They are fabulous. When we think of classical music though, we often think only of the beauty of it, but not also of the pain and vulnerability that it can express and evoke. The Five Browns shook perceptions of the classical music world when they revealed that all three women had been sexually abused as children and sought justice in their case. This brave act shattered stereotypes and elevated the issue of child sexual abuse in an audience where it had previously been little discussed. Our conversation touches some core questions. How does music connect us to our own humanity? How can music help heal survivors in broken places that nothing else seems to reach? And how does the love and support of family as allies help survivors thrive? Take a listen. Well, thank you so much for joining us, um, Deandra and Greg. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. For those people who may not know as much as they should about the Five Browns, hopefully everybody has gone online and already listened to you, but just in case they haven't, can you talk just a little bit about how you siblings came to form the Five Browns? How did this even happen to begin with? Sure. The five of us are all siblings and we all grew up for almost all of our childhood. We all started uh, piano at the age of three and we just grew up playing piano. We had five pianos in our house uh, all growing up. And uh, eventually we all ended up at the Juilliard School at the same time in New York. We're pretty close in age. There are only six and a half years between the five of us. And around the time when my older sisters were graduating, uh, we started kind of talking about what a career might look like in music. And we realized that we all had very similar goals on how we'd like to present classical music and what kind of music we'd like to play. So we figured why not sort of pool our efforts and uh, see if we could kind of make it as a group together playing five piano music, which doesn't really exist. So we have to get it especially arranged for us. But we've been playing together for uh, over 15 years now, play concerts all over the world. Um, it's been a real joy. Uh, and we uh, record albums together and uh, sort of what we do. <laughs> you now, I think that it's just incredible when I listen to your music. I can't even imagine how you all, even after watching pieces from the little tin box and other things, I cannot even imagine trying to figure out how to keep things synchronized in the way that you guys do. I think it's just incredible. Were you all all very close as siblings when you were young, or did somehow becoming the Five Browns bring you closer together and playing together in this way, or both? Deandra, Greg, whoever wants to answer that question. So as children growing up, you have your relationships with each other and the way you deal with each other as children. Um, oftentimes, adults don't get the opportunity to get to know each other as grownups and to get to appreciate the things about each other that kind of come to fruition in your adult years. So the five of us really appreciate the fact that 
not only do we have these close childhood relationships, but we really do know each other as adults. And Gregory and I used to argue like to no end as children. And it has been such an incredible gift to be able to get to know him as an adult, for us to be able to rely on each other as friends instead of just as somebody who shares the same DNA. So it's been amazing over the years to be able to watch our personal relationships not only solidify, but grow, which I think only adds more to the music that we bring together too. Really, you all have been such outspoken supporters, not only of Children's Advocacy Centers, but overall the response to child abuse and child sexual abuse. And there are many ways that survivors and their family members and allies deal with these sorts of things. And sometimes they deal with that just strictly internally within their own families. Other times they feel more empowered by speaking out. And I'm just wondering, you know, in your own family, among the five siblings, particularly, how did you all negotiate that or navigate that, especially initially, not so much the disclosure of abuse, but just deciding about whether you wanted to be more public or bring public awareness to the issue by using your voice or position to do that? Well, to my brother's credit along the way, both Gregory and Ryan um, never wanted to place restrictions on you know, our healing process or our abilities to speak publicly about it. Uh, they always just wanted to stand by and be there to support us through whatever we felt was necessary for ourselves. And each of the three of us sisters, even though we've lived through sexual abuse, you know, it's affected us differently. We're each individual people who need different things. So I think as a group, one of the most challenging things for us as siblings was to sit down and really kind of just honestly speak to each other about where our comfort level was and what we felt was right for us individually, and then just find a way as siblings to support each other in our needs, fully understanding that what works for me or what feels right for me, you know, advocating for victims is not necessarily going to be right for maybe one of my other sisters. So we've tried, I think, to our credit over the years to try to better understand each other and not group all of us into the same lump. And I think as siblings who, where our career is based around the group philosophy, Mm -hmm. it was an interesting pivot for us, wouldn't you say, Gregory, to be able to realize that, yes, we are a group. And in a lot of ways, we have to make these decisions together. But almost more importantly, we are individuals and we want to be able to love and care for our siblings through the process as well. Yeah, I think as an outsider, sort of being introduced to our story, you know, after the fact, after so many years of us kind of um, confronting this as as a family, it may look like we've, you know, just sort of got it all figured out. And we just always understood each other and always kind of knew how to sort of be there for one another. Thinking of it like that may be a disservice to other families who are going through something similar because this process took years for us to kind of figure out how to be with each other, right? Like how to to kind of learn, like for, for me as somebody who has not experienced abuse, to try and understand what Deandra may have gone through or what one of my other sisters may have gone through and then how to kind of be there for that individual person. Because like Deandra said, it's different for everybody. Um, and 
kind of figuring out how to communicate with each other all over again. Um, it took a while. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I, I think we're still in that process sometimes. It's interesting what you both are saying about this, because I think sometimes people think that there's going to be one big family conversation. And it sounds like what you're describing, and I think what many people experience is it's a series of conversations as things arise. Gregory, I'm wondering, what do you think that you've learned most about being an ally? You know, as you pointed out, you didn't have this experience yourself. You wanted to be supportive from the beginning. But, you know, sometimes we can also make stumbles in trying to support something we don't understand. So what did you find most helpful, you know, in coming to think about this? Yeah, I think maybe like part of my personality just in general was that when problems arise, I want to try and like fix stuff, right? And I, I quickly realized, or, or, you know, maybe not as quickly as I ought to have, but realized that a lot of that is just, just not in my power, right? Like, I can't just fix everything. A lot of what abuse survivors have to deal with is lifelong and will always be there. And I began to realize that sometimes the most helpful thing I can do is just listen to what they have to say and kind of show them how much I love them and care about them. You know, we can talk things through and sometimes that comes to things that are practical conclusions that we can kind of do to help make things easier, but sometimes it doesn't. And it's fine to just kind of talk about Mm, it. Yeah. (laughs) mm, mm. Deandra, you know, when you have thought about the ways in which you know, your siblings have been a support to you. Is there something that stands out to you as that was the thing that really helped so much? I mean, I'm sure there's more than one thing, but is there something that just thinking about advice to others about things to even be thinking of as they're supporting survivors? Well, something that I've thought about on and off over the years since these initial conversations that the five of us had, something that stands out to me is the fact that my brothers never came and asked for specifics about Mm. the abuse. They never felt the need to know more than we were comfortable Mm. sharing. I think if the three of us sisters had wanted to share more details about it, they absolutely would have been there to support us. But to their credit, they knew that it happened and that it was completely traumatizing, and they wanted to be there as a support. So something I've thought about over the years is the fact that they didn't ask too many questions. They didn't pry or prod. They left it up to us and our comfortability over the years. That has even shifted. Like sometimes I'll say something in passing to Gregory, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not sure I've ever told them that before, you know? And it's just because you have that certain amount of trust that has built up over the years. And I know that if I feel the need or desire to share something more private about my experiences, that he'll be there. I can take that for granted a little bit. So advice I would give to those who are maybe family members of someone who has been abused or a close friend, just wait until that individual is ready to talk. Sometimes it's difficult to not want to ask more questions, but allow us the time to speak mm. up. Allow us the time to, we're still kind of processing sure. those emotions on, and those experiences on our own anyway. So sometimes it just takes years to be able to get to a point 
where we're okay to talk about specific things. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that one of the things I was thinking about in prepping for this interview was the fact that, you know, from lots of different spheres, thank goodness, over the past, let's say, decade or so, people have come forward to disclose their abuse and to be good allies and from really all walks of life and varying celebrities, those kinds of things. But I was trying to think, and I could not come up with a name of any other classical musician who had come forward in this way. And I'm just wondering what it was like to, in many ways, in your own field, I mean, you were absolutely on the leading edge in terms of being out there on these issues, because there wasn't really, at least as I remember, lots of other folks who had disclosed at the time that you did. I think you're right. We felt like we were sort of chartering into uncharted territory and we didn't have a lot of examples within our field of people who had disclosed sexual violence of some um, entity uh, publicly. I think one of the biggest challenges for us was knowing that the pending case in our family was public mm. record, knowing that it was going to be out that people were going to connect the pieces um, and that the media was then going to make the conclusions for mm -hmm. us was a little bit disturbing for the five of us. So we initially made that leap to come out publicly and put our names out there because we wanted to have control over the narrative that was told. We had some amazing people who advised us behind the scenes at that time and, and helped to kind of filter some of the impact from the media. Now, looking back on it in the future, I feel like that was sort of like an important step for the five of us to feel like, even though it's not something we would have chosen maybe per se at that point in time to come out publicly, it felt like we held on to a little bit of our story for ourselves and had control over that. And I, I honestly think ever since then, we've had control over what's released out there. And I feel like that was an important step for us deciding to make that leap. But with that said, we had many, many hours of conversations, private conversations with the five of us trying to figure out like if our professional career in classical music could withstand mm. the impact of this being released to the media. Would people be able to sit down in a concert hall and appreciate and enjoy the experience of having this entertainment um, presented to them with this cloud kind of hanging over of, of what had happened in our personal lives. We didn't know at the time, because like you say, we didn't have a lot of it, you know, examples of, to draw from, but we knew what the right thing to do was. We felt that we needed to move forward with the case, regardless of what the impact was, because it was the right thing to do to make sure that other kids were protected from our father, potentially down the road. We didn't want to have these, um, you know, thoughts of doubt that we could have changed and saved another child's life. So we moved forward knowing that our career could take a hit. And to our surprise, audiences ever since that first concert back all these years ago and to the present have been incredibly supportive. And I think in some ways it makes us more human. Mm. It connects us with people because even if you haven't lived through childhood sexual abuse or like everyone can understand certain feelings that we all share with one another's feelings of sadness and pain and regret and mixed in with feelings of 
of trying to, you know, understand your childhood with these happy memories at the same time. Everyone can understand that and relate to that one way or another. And it's it's been, I think, to the testament of our audiences, they have been able to have more of an understanding of humanity um, as they come to our concerts, hopefully, and feel that that we are real life human beings who have lived through difficult things, but we still have a lot of beautiful moments ahead of us as well. You know, one of the things I was wondering is whether you've had significant outreach from your fans who may have either experienced abuse themselves or may have a family member, loved one, a friend who may have experienced that. Have you found that, that you've had some kind of reaching back, you know, essentially around this issue since you guys have been so on the forefront of it? Deandra could probably speak a little bit better to this, but it is important to us to, well, in pre-COVID times, to, to like meet our audiences after performances. We will kind of go out into the lobby mm. and, you know, shake hands and stuff, just kind of get to meet little kids who are taking piano lessons and all that good stuff. And it seems like, like very frequently, um, there will be members of the audience who will come through and sometimes they'll say something specific um, that lets you know that they are survivors. Um, other times they'll sort of speak more roundabout, but you can just mm-hmm. tell they um, will often talk about how the music that we play has kind of had an effect on their, on their lives. Um, and I, you know, there's just, I can't think of anything more simultaneously heartbreaking, but also inspiring and moving than kind of getting to see, uh, you know, the real faces of real people who have experienced this kind of trauma and pain. And um, I I count it as as a blessing to be able to to interact with people who have and and to to kind of see, see the pain, but also see the hope. Deandra, I'm wondering if you find that exhausting. I mean, I can see how it would also be hopeful, but I can also feel like if you're already tired after a performance (laughs) and, you know, sometimes you might just not necessarily want to have that conversation yet again. It can be heavy, as you would very well know. You you live this every day in a, a way that many people need in their lives. It can be very difficult sometimes to try to balance empathy and love and concern for these, quite frankly, for people you've never even met before, for sure. strangers. But I look at it like an opportunity to have this this almost you know, connection with strangers who I maybe would not have had before. Um, And then it's even heightened by the power of music that they just experienced in a concert. I have realized over the years that I have to be very careful about uh, not taking on more than I feel like I can physically handle. And Teresa, I, I share this experience when I speak many times in different formats. Some advice that you gave me very early on. And I, I hope, hope it was good advice. <laughs> yes, it was very good advice. And I think about it on and off ever since this conversation, probably almost a decade ago with you. But you said, make sure that you take care mm. of yourself through all of this. 
You said, even if it's strictly so that you can help others, you can't do that if you don't take care of yourself first. And I've thought about that so much about like, how you know we want to change people's lives and help them as best as we can and you know I want to use my experiences to help others through the process but if there's nothing mm-hmm. left of me to give I can't do that I cherish my personal time with my husband and my daughter um I'm very like protective of that and I've had to learn over the years that it's okay not to say yes to every speaking uh, engagement or say yes to every opportunity to try to speak with the media. I've had to try to kind of keep it all in perspective and realize, okay, do I physically have mm. the energy to do this and to do it at the level that I would hope to? Or am I sort of depleted at this point in time where I need to kind of cut back on things that I am agreeing to do? And I've had to realize that as a victim, it's okay to say Mm. no. It sounds so simple. But even after all these years, after the abuse long, long ago, there's still something in me that feels like I need to say yes to all these little things, even just to help people. And sometimes it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to like do what's right for you in the moment, to do what's right, to preserve your personal space and your personal time with your family. And so I think that's an important lesson that I've learned over the years that I don't need to feel guilty about turning something down because what all I'm doing is replenishing that ability within myself to continue to push on and do more. Well, and, you know, being healthy in the world is its own gift to the world. You know, when I think about all the adult survivors that I've talked to over the years, for me, on my side of it, there's this ethical question, you know, that NCA can't be the thing that's draining someone. (laughs) You know, that would be so wrong. And so, you know, we want to be always be the thing that's supporting them and lifting them up. One of the things that I want to talk to you two about a little bit, because I think, Music in general, we all have experienced some kind of suffering in the world. I mean, this is the human condition. And I just wonder about the way you think about music in its relationship to that. I think for many people, they find, you know, a solace in music or a refuge in music or um, that regulates their moods or whatever. And I'm just wondering about how do you think about the role of music beyond it's nice to listen to, you know, or it's wonderful entertainment or whatever. But beyond that, what do you think about it? You know, I, I think it's I think it's str- strange that I, as a musician, as somebody who has spent my entire life kind of trying to understand the power of music, that it is still something of a mystery mm-hmm. to me. I don't really know why it makes me feel certain ways. I don't know why um, listening to music has so much power over my emotion or over kind of the way I see the world or myself in the world. I don't understand that, but I do know that it's real. I can't think of another thing. I mean, this maybe this is different for each person, but uh, I can't think of anything that is more powerful artistically to me than music. There is just something that without words, without having to, you know, like express it in like a human way, somehow it's still, I don't know, kind of plums the depths of my mm-hmm. soul. Like, I, I, I don't know what it is that like, can make me cry or to make me get goosebumps. It can be cathartic sometimes to be up on stage. And, you know, sometimes the, the piece we're playing is like, 
an angry piece or like, uh, or something like really dramatic in it. And it gives me a chance to kind of like explore that emotion, uh, to kind of explore that part of myself, right? Because I think as humans, we all have kind of different facets of ourselves. And it's equally fun to kind of explore that element of music as it is to kind of explore like a, a really joyful piece or a piece that kind of is an exploration of grief mm. and sadness or pain. And the strange thing to me as a performer is that when I'm up on stage playing these, these pieces of music, I'm actually experiencing these things, right? It's not like some sort of emotion felt secondarily, right? It's like uh, I'm actually feeling grief or pain or joy or anger. And it's a really cool experience to be up on stage. I imagine it's something similar to what actors feel when they're playing a character. Well, and the key difference between those of us who are listening <laughs> as well, I could see how it's so joyful for you in that way to be, and not just joyful, but whatever the emotion is, it's that intensified. Um, and we could see it when you guys are playing too. Deandra, what about you? And I'm just wondering, like, has it changed for you over time? I'm imagining like, as a child playing and even while you were going through some very difficult things and now as an adult, how has it been for you? I was always the one out of the five of us that you knew was going to have all her piano assignments ready for the week. And I was like really on top of it. Growing up, it was my thing. Music was my thing. I didn't need a ton of push or incentives from my parents. Like I felt like it was part of who I was. And that has extended into my adult years where I feel like the music is something so personal to me. And it was my decision all along that I wanted to continue to play. And so it's been an outlet for me. A lot of times if I'm experiencing these emotions of sadness or anger, like I can go sit down at the piano bench and like just let it out. Or I can pop on a piece of music and feel like I can experience it that way as well. Um, but I know for some of my other siblings that it maybe wasn't quite that cut and dry, that the music was sort of mixed up in our childhood and, uh, and, and it's difficult to kind of process like where you were then in terms of you know, practicing and having the push from the parents and all of that, and then where you are now. So I feel like music can have so many different outlets for us, but it can also be challenging for abuse victims if they grew up as a musician and are trying to kind of filter where they are and all of that. But for the regular individual, I feel like there's a reason why uh, music therapy is used so universally in so many different facets, because it strikes to the core of the human expression, like you were saying, like, we all know these specific emotions. And it's important for us to feel like we can connect with humanity and with ourselves in a way that we maybe hadn't experienced before. So as a musician, I feel very lucky that I'm sort of in tune with those emotions already. I feel like it's very much helped my healing process along the way, but I'm fully understanding that it may not be that way for every musician who's lived through difficult things or for every individual as well. 
You know, it was interesting the way in which you both sort of talked about its transporting powers, you know, which I think are sort of difficult to understand in terms of like, if you were trying to dissect it for someone, but you could certainly feel being transported by music or other types of arts. And you were comparing it even to other sorts of things like being an actor, I would imagine being a, you know, visual artist would be similar, all of those kinds of things. I'm wondering, many, many children, I mean, thank God, benefit from counseling, but not many probably get the benefits of really being involved in the arts. And I'm just wondering when you think about children who, particularly children who have been abused, sort of what the role is or how we should be thinking about their access to the arts more broadly. That's a great question. And I think it is really important. The thing with the arts is that the whole point of of the arts is to help people connect with their like inner selves, right? And with their emotions and for expression of difficult or sometimes even inutterable things, right? And how does a person learn how to do that, right? And I think one of the easiest ways for that to happen is through the arts, right? It kind of allows a person or a child this space in which they're specifically focused on that, focused on expression and on their like inner selves. And I think it's really important for children to have those experiences and those opportunities. And unfortunately, um, a lot of schools are dropping arts programs. You know, it's very common these days. And I think that's a huge loss, honestly. I don't think there's another thing that can kind of make up for what is lost when we lose the arts for kids. I know for me personally, I don't feel like I would be able to express myself as well through words, uh, through introspection, without having kind of spent my entire life with the arts and kind of like thinking about that and kind of practicing on that expression. Deandra? I think that, you know, right along the same lines that, that Gregory had mentioned, I think that we're in a sense doing our kids a big disservice if we don't allow them the opportunity to experience the arts in some facet. I feel like there is a lot of push for our kids to be involved in sports and in different extracurricular activities. The five Browns, my brothers and sisters and myself will always say, let the arts be a part of those extracurricular activities too. There's certain things that I feel like a child will understand and appreciate and feel that they can only get through the arts. And then if you pivot back to the work that, you know, National Children's Alliance does and all the different uh, centers across the country, it is so important for kids to understand how to tap into those emotions. And if you came from a home environment or even your community where it wasn't necessarily popular to be in touch with those different sides of your personality, those emotions, you wouldn't necessarily know how to access that and how to better understand yourself and better relate to those around you. Um, I feel like it's very important to have the arts and music and literature and all these important aspects of our community at the forefront of the next generation so that we can make sure that they're prepared and can better understand each other and better relate to one another through their lives. 
mean, it seems to me there are two different things. Like one is that for kids who've experienced trauma, one way that can surface is they have sort of a flat affect because they've numbed, you know, they're numb. And it seems to me that the arts and music in particular could be really useful in helping kids kind of get in touch with those feelings that they've been sort of numbing because it's so painful when they think about what's happened to them. But I think the other thing about the arts is that whether the music is angry or joyful or whatever it is, it also is beautiful. And there are lots of kids who have no beauty in their life or very little. And I think about that, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you introduce the idea of hope to someone who is experiencing a lot of things that really tear that down? And it seems to me that you know, just my own personal belief is that the arts have a role in kind of engaging the hope that resides within us, you know, just by being exposed to these kind of things. So I'm not a musician, though, as you can tell. So that's just my amateur way of thinking about it. (laughs) I totally agree with you. You know, I teach my little niece piano lessons. And we often have conversations about this, about, you know, after she plays a piece or improvises a little thing, or after we listen to a piece of music, I'll talk to her about Mm -hmm. how it made her feel or um, what did she think that the composer was trying to express? And there was even this one time when we were out at the park one day with her family and and we were listening to a a concert. It was the New York Phil uh, in Central Park and they were playing. uh, It was the Barbara Adagio for strings, which is a just iconically tragic piece. And she was playing with her little friends for a little bit. And then as soon as they started, she sort of stopped. And she just kind of stood there in the middle of the park, just listening. And she she was really small at this point. And so I went up and started chatting with her. And she said, it's so sad. I'm like, yeah, it, it is sad. And she says, is it going to get happier? And I said, you know, sometimes, sometimes music doesn't get happier. And it just it stays sad. And she kind of started tearing up a little bit. And we kind of like had like a, a beautiful mm. moment kind of talking about emotion and humanity and how that's expressed through music. And without the arts, it's really hard for kids to kind of explore these things. It's hard for adults to explore these things too. Yeah, it's a safe place to explore them in a lot of ways. So interesting. I was just thinking as you were talking about the little tin box and that album and the concert that you guys did, which was just marvelous. I have to tell you, I didn't know exactly what I was going to hear going in. It was one of those things where I was like, I knew it would be fantastic, of course, but I was just sort of like, is it going to be sad? Is it going to be soulful? Like, what is the right word for what it's going to be? And it was a lot of things, which I loved. It was like a musical journey. But I was thinking about that concert and how it was kind of at this point in the pandemic when weren't we all completely sick and tired of the pandemic? So when I attended that concert, it was really interesting because I had this feeling and someone wrote me afterwards who was there who said the same thing. It made them feel hopeful. You know, there was something about your musical selections and the way that you were talking about it. And it just was uplifting, not in some kind of weird, cheesy way, but just in this way that makes your heart lift a little bit. And so, first of all, let me just say thank you for that, because it came at a time when I think lots of us needed that. But it really speaks to what you're describing, which is it's a way to explore the feelings you're having at the moment. It's also a way to be transported out of a feeling you don't want to be having at the moment, like I'm sick of the pandemic um, and all of those things. So, can you talk 
talk just a minute for folks who don't know sort of the connection that you guys have with the Children's Advocacy Center movement? Just like, how did you guys come to find us? First of all, I do feel like it's been such a time now that, you know, it's been a while. So I'm not even sure I remember how that happened. And then just sort of how you think about the advocacy that you guys are doing, the advocacy we're doing, and sort of what's next for all of us in raising these issues up. I mean, do you see a sort of next, I don't know if it's a public policy matter or if it's just more outreach on these issues, but I'm just so curious because we're thinking about the same thing. We're like, so what's next for us in terms of raising awareness on these issues? Well, I think it was 2011 when our story first went public And within that first six or eight months, Tracy Tabbitt here from the Children's Justice Center program in Utah reached out to me as a support, first of all, after having talked about, you know, our story publicly and talking about the sexual abuse effects. She wanted to just make sure that I had somebody that I knew was in my court. And I'll try not to get emotional, but because this is very personal work to me. But she um, she then told me about the work of the Children's Justice Centers here in Utah. And it opened up my eyes to what was being done already. And then what I thought, how we needed to then let people know that. Um, it was a little bit shocking to me that there was a Children's Justice Center early in the 1990s here in Utah, there were several. And that there would have been a center that I would have gone to as a child, like something about Mm. that resonated with me. And taking a tour of that Children's Justice Center in Provo here in Utah was quite moving for my sister Desi and me just to think about the amazing people who are doing such important work that are underappreciated and underrecognized. So Ever since then, my relationship with Tracy has involved like, what can we do more to like help people know about our centers here in Utah? And then Tracy connected me with you, Teresa, and with National Children's Alliance. And it's been a passion of mine early on through this journey to make sure that people know about the work of our advocacy centers and children's justice centers across the country, that they don't just know about it, but that they understand the importance of the work so that they can then um, better advocate for their their local centers. And my siblings have since then, um, I've I've, uh, taken them on tours of different centers and different tour stops. You know, they've all been incredibly supportive of this work. So one of the things that Tracy mentioned to me early on was she said, I feel like your message is so hopeful. The five of you as siblings, I feel like it's important for people to understand that, yes, the abuse happened, but it doesn't define you. It doesn't define your decisions moving forward. And I feel like as brothers and sisters and as even the musical group, the five Browns, I feel like that's one of the most important messages maybe that we can share with the world is that, you know, there's hope after all this. There's beauty and happiness and beautiful memories. And we feel like it's important for people and victims across the country to understand that 
even if you've been abused, you can go on to have an amazing life. You can do all the things that you would hope for. You can, you know, give back to your community. And so I feel like we have a very special place in our hearts for all of the work that the advocacy centers do across the country and National Children's Alliance um, at the helm. And so when we decided to put together our, I think it's our eighth album, is that right, Gregory? The Little Tin Box. We wanted to take the opportunity to not just record the music, put it out there, but to frame it in such a way that people can understand the commonality that we all share through childhood experience and childhood trauma. And there was no better connection to that in our minds than linking to the National Children's Alliance and hoping to steer people towards you. And I'll let Gregory kind of preface the idea behind the album a little bit more and why we tied it so specifically to the work of National Children's Alliance. Sure, yeah. So our album just previous to this one was kind of an exploration of anger and pain, right? As we were kind of grappling with that as siblings. And we we started thinking, okay, well, you know, that's not all there is though, right? And we would look back on certain memories, particularly the memories that involved our siblings. And they were beautiful and they were fun sometimes and silly sometimes and and hopeful along with, you know, sad and and traumatizing and all the other things. It's just all of the, um, everything that you would throw into a human life, right? Kids experience that as well. I think it's easy to, you know, to look at a child and think that, you know, it's all just kind of happy and fun. And it's easy to look at someone who's experienced abuse and to think that it's all just pain and struggle. And so we thought as artists, what can we do to kind of paint that picture? And so we put together an album of pieces, some of which we actually played as children, that kind of represented the little things you might put into a keepsake box as a child, the little things that you hang on to. And they represent memory, right? And so each piece kind of represented uh, an emotional response to memory, some of them happy, some of them joyful, some of them angry and painful, some of them kind of reflective and a little sad, kind of tinged with a little bit of sadness. And so we kind of just go through the program as a person goes through their life, right? In a lot of ways, it's kind of a reclaiming of childhood for us, the beautiful parts of it, and and kind of like finding joy in them again, and a little bit of healing as well, I think. There's something about music that really kind of aids you along that journey, I think. We had recorded this album several years ago, and we're kind of waiting trying to figure out the right timing and the right format to release it. And then as we saw everything shut down and kids pulled out of school um, because of the pandemic, we talked internally thinking, well, maybe this is the time to further these discussions so that you know, people understand that we're all in this together and that we specifically need to be watching out for the impacts on our children and on their experiences and making sure that they feel that there's this commonality between all of us that will get through this and it will be okay. And there's hope at the end of all of this. So I think as we move forward and, you know, when you ask about next steps, I think to the five of us, I think 
we have many, you know, professional goals, but I think even personally and with this album, we just want as much as we can to help people feel comfortable in having these difficult discussions, whether it's abuse, whether it's other kinds of trauma, whether it's, you know, things that we've kind of hidden away in the back of our minds. We hope that through, you know, the shared experience, through the difficulties of the five of us in our childhoods, that people can feel like there's a community and the power of music can help us to get through those experiences and to, in a sense, come out on the other side stronger and healthier, you know, reset our goals towards a happier and healthier and more um, sustainable future in terms of our, our mental health and in terms of our family relationships, just making sure that people understand that these discussions are important, they're necessary, and any small way that the five of us can help to encourage people to feel that they can speak out the better. So what question have I not asked you that I should have? I can't think of anything, really. I do want to say thank you, Teresa, and everyone at NCA and at the centers all across the country for what you do. You know, I have had the chance, the the blessing, really, of being able to spend my life with Deandra and the rest of my siblings. And I've had a chance to see each of them at their highest and also at their lowest. And the lowest is rough, you know, um, every little kid that you guys are helping understands that. And I think, you know, there are a lot of things that are really inspiring about my sisters. Um, a lot of things, but I think just the, the hope that it gives me to see their lives as they are now, just wonderful, wonderful people, kind, generous people, and I don't know how that happens. I don't know how you get to that point. You know, I've, I've gotten a chance to kind of like watch them along their journey. Um, I, I can't say how they have the power and the, the hope to, to get through those hard moments, but they do and they have and it's, and it's beautiful to watch. And it's thanks to people in our lives, sort of like you and, and uh, Teresa and, and the rest of everybody else at NCA who are who are trying to help people confront these parts of their lives and and heal from the trauma. So I just wanted to say thank you. Oh, thank you, Gregory. Um, Teresa, wonderful discussion and opportunity to kind of, we, Gregory and I can both say, we don't oftentimes get to explore this connection um, in terms of music and the arts and healing and trauma. So this is very wonderful for us to be able to kind of reflect and to think through our lives and, you know, how we can help others. Um, But I must say, people ask me all the time, like, you've lived through so many difficult things, like, how can you stay optimistic? How can you continue to look forward? And quite honestly, I can say it's because I feel like this next generation of kids who have lived through terrible things like we have, have so many important services and tools at their disposal that maybe our generation didn't or was fairly new at the time. So it makes me optimistic that even though these terrible things keep happening, that abuse is still happening, unfortunately, and we're doing everything we can to help prevent it, that even when these terrible things happen, the kids will be set on a more healthy path 
they'll be able to understand and work through the trauma much sooner than maybe the five of us did and many others from older generations. Like it's an opportunity for us to know that, you know, even though abuse is still there, that we can work through it and see a positive result because of the work, the mental health treatments, the other services that centers are providing. It's exciting to think that the next generation of kids will be a step ahead of us and that they will be able to process it sooner and not let it affect their lives and drag them down, that they'll be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel much sooner because of the work done in the centers. So this album in particular and the work that we're trying to do to speak out about the work in advocacy centers, it's really just a tribute to those of you who work in this movement so that you can understand that we see you We feel you, we understand the difficult days, like many of you just put it all out there. And we want you to know that we appreciate you. And as we recorded this album, we had you in mind. So please know that the work that you do is changing lives. And we believe that the next generation of kids are gonna be better equipped because of you. So thank you. Well, speaking of allyship, you've been wonderful allies to the CAC and CJC movement. And we appreciate you every single day, not just for coming on the podcast, although I appreciate that too, but we really do truly appreciate the way you've lifted up these issues. So I look forward to talking to you again in the future and just thank you so much for all that you're doing every day. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to One in 10. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And to learn more about National Children's Alliance or the work of Children's Advocacy Centers, please visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.